Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's Word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. John chapter 7, uh, we're, we're going to close this uh, chapter out. And we're going to close this chapter out by really asking the question, what then do the people do? Um, we're looking at this, this chapter where essentially we have watched the Lord Jesus claim deity and claim Messiahship, not once, not twice, but multiple times. He is making sure that people know, I am who you've been looking forward to. And so if you would, just a couple of verses that really point this out, that the people are beginning to really consider this, is in John chapter 7, in verse 27, it says this, but we, know where the man, but we know where this man comes from, and when, and, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. They're beginning to question who this, uh, can Jesus actually be the Messiah? We know that he's from Galilee, and since we know that he's from Galilee, um, we, he certainly can't be the Messiah because we know where he comes from. A little bit later on in verse, um, in verse 31, it says, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? I mean, they're, they're seeing all of the incredible things that the Lord Jesus has done. They're beginning to really question, could this actually be the Christ? And the question they ask at the very beginning here is, we know where he's from. And since we know where he's from, he can't be the Messiah. Now, what's a bit ironic about this is the passage we deal with today, they begin to say, well, we know that he's from Galilee, all the while being ignorant of the fact that he is perhaps, yes, from Galilee, but he was not born there. So this morning, what we're going to look at is how the people began to divide over the person of Christ. Now, as we dive into this passage, let me just say this first and foremost. There is nothing under the sun that divides like the Lord Jesus. Hear me when I say this. Yes, obviously our world is broken and fallen due to sin. But if you would like to watch divisions occur within families, if you would like to watch divisions occur in the closest of friends, in really whatever scale and spectrum you would like to apply them, have one person claim that Christ is God and bow to his lordship. I need you to understand that when we say that we're followers of Christ, it means that by necessity then we neglect all other lords. That means in the very similar sense that when we claim an absolute truth, which the Christian faith does, we thereby condemn every other statement in regard to this issue. And so when I say that to you this morning, we live in a very postmodern world where we can have multiple truths, friends. That's never been the case. If something is true, by necessity, anything that makes a truth claim about whatever that topic is, is therefore a lie. And so this morning, what we're going to look into is the claim that Jesus is the Christ and how that affects the people that are surrounding this claim. And so if you would, for the reading of God's word, uh, please stand. John chapter 7, starting in verse 40, we will make our way all the way through verse 52. I would remind you that what we have before us is the word of God, the only, only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Verse 40 says this, When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. 
Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers said, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray together. Lord, we come this morning to fix our eyes on the scriptures. Lord, we come this morning to have Christ revealed to us, Lord, and what we are to, how we are to live in a faithful manner, submitting to his lordship. And Father, I come confessing to you weakness and frailty, Lord. But Lord, I'm reminded once again of that sweet verse that gives comfort to each of us that we might boast all the more gladly in our weakness that Christ's power may rest upon us. So Father, as we come to the scriptures, we ask you to do what you have promised. Lord, accomplish the purpose that you have set out for it this morning. It is in the name of Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, the way we're going to walk through this is um, probably a bit different. Normally, we'll walk through a sermon via points, just a couple of just walking through, perhaps categorizing it. This morning, what I'd like to do is walk through it in somewhat of a narrative fashion. So essentially, what we'll do is take it verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and just walk straight down. The reason I want to do that is because what you find in this passage are two distinct groups, but the exact same thing happens. Um, and so the first, uh, the first paragraph that you'll see there is really the common people, the people that are just kind of the normal Jewish people who have an acquaintance with the scriptures, but perhaps have not studied them in depth like the Pharisees have. And that would lead us into the second group of people. The second group of people are those who are higher ups. They have a bit of a higher education. They've studied under some of the best teachers. They're called the learned of Israel. So what I'd like to do is consider how each of these people respond. So the first thing that we want to do is examine um, the context. How do we get here? So in verse 40, it says this, When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. So let's stop there and ask the question, what are the words that we're talking about? And not to develop too much of last week's sermon, but I would like to reiterate that because that leads us into this point. It says in verse 38, pardon me, 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is what they're responding to in the immediate context. They've certainly had all of the things that have taken place in this week of the Feast of Booze on their minds. They're considering them. They know that the centerpiece of this whole feast has been the Lord Jesus, whether they recognize that or not. And now this statement has really begun to cause a great deal of division among them because he's looking at them and he's saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Now, this is an exclusive claim. He is making the statement that if anyone actually has a desire to be nourished spiritually, the only end, the only means by which someone can actually be satisfied is in him. That provision cannot be found anywhere else. And so when the Lord Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and I will give him, I will give him living water. He is making an incredible claim. He's making a claim that the Jewish people understood to some degree, perhaps not in full, but as they begin to consider it and begin to think about it in the grand context of everything that John has written or perhaps they themselves have experienced, 
they're beginning to see there's something unique about this man. They begin to ask the questions, well, we know where he's from, and since we know where he's from, he can't be the Christ. But simultaneously, will the Christ do more miracles than this man has done? They're perhaps beginning to discuss how the invalid was just miraculously healed by the authority of Christ's command. Or perhaps they're considering the young child who is sick and the Lord Jesus from miles and miles away speaks his authoritative voice over the expanse of time and calls this child to be healed. I mean, just to consider the things that have taken place, the things that we have seen thus far, it makes sense that they begin to ask these questions. Now, what's interesting is, even amidst all of these questions, there are two professions that arise from the people, three, really. But the things that we hear said, the first being in verse 40, this really is the prophet. Now, it's hard for us to divorce the idea that the prophet is the Messiah, but there was a Jewish teaching that there were multiple people who would fulfill the roles of prophet, of um, the king uh, the king like David, and so forth and so on. They really didn't have an understanding, at least many of them did not, that this man that is spoken of all throughout the Old Testament, this Messiah figure, this prophet, this priest, this king, would actually be fulfilled in one individual. And so this profession that this is certainly the prophet is not really giving him the credit that he deserves. It is certainly making reference that he is a great teacher, that he has great authority, that he's able to do these incredible things like Moses has done. And all throughout the book of John so far, we've seen multiple occurrences of similarities between Jesus' miracles and Moses's. And yet every time we see the Lord Jesus take a step up, Moses certainly was the means by which God parted the Red Sea. Moses was certainly the way the Israelites would see God's provision in the wilderness when manna would come. But they had watched. They had watched Christ do things that far exceeded this. And so they claim him to be the prophet. Perhaps he's the better Moses, they thought to themselves. Then there are others that come forth and they give this grand profession. And friends, I wish that we could savor the sweetness of this profession. This is the whole purpose of John writing. John chapter 20 makes it clear the intent of John's writing. He longs that people might see, hear, and believe that Jesus is indeed the Son of God and that by believing in Him you may have life in His name. This profession, this is the Christ, is a glorious profession. And to be completely honest with you, I think that in this profession we see those who actually did go to Christ and drink. That those were the ones who said, look, we believe in Him. We cast ourselves on Him. And in casting ourselves on them, we believe that there is from them then the Holy Spirit working and giving them the ability to see in full. Not just this division of, yes, there's a prophet that's to come. Yes, there's one like David that's to come. Yes, we're going to have a priesthood, maybe perhaps in the order of Melchizedek, but not like the priest of of the Levites, but they begin to see in full. And I'm convinced this grand profession is not just them saying, yes, he's the Christ that we've kind of been looking for, but instead he is the Christ. He is the one that their hearts have been longing for. He is the one whom they know that should they go to him thirsty, he will satisfy them. Now, I would like to give you just kind of a brief examination of what this profession would ultimately mean. This profession ultimately means that they are looking at the entirety of the Old Testament and consolidating that in one individual. Friends, the Old Testament had always done that anyway. The Old Testament had always pointed to one, the perfect Son of God. 
The whole purpose of John writing is to lead us to this conclusion that he is indeed the Son of God. And I'm convinced that this profession is not the people who are beginning to divide, to divide him up and assume that, yes, maybe he's like this one or maybe he's like this one. But instead they look at him and they say, you are the Son of God. You are the anointed one. This is the grandest of professions. This is the profession of every Christian today. If this is not the profession of your tongue, if you do not bow to him as Lord, God, and King, friends, then his salvific work is not applied to you. We call him, yes, he is the true and better prophet. Yes, he is the true King and, and, and the one who will sit on the throne forever of David. But simultaneously, my friends, he is the suffering servant. You see, the Jews couldn't, re couldn't reconcile this idea of this warrior king like Joshua and simultaneously the suffering servant that we see in the book of Isaiah. But friends, we find that perfectly fulfilled in the person of Christ. And I'm convinced that these people began to see it in full. They began to capture glimpses of that. They believed that should they place their trust and faith in him, then they would have life and life more abundantly. And so this profession is a grand one, and yet immediately the profession is tested. And I think it's healthy for the profession to be tested, especially in this day and time. But immediately you see this statement. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? They immediately begin to cast doubt on it. And what I do love about these people, these lesser perhaps trained people, they immediately think to themselves, let us confirm his Messiahship as opposed to let us find a way to deny it. In verse 42 it says this, Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? I love this verse. I love this verse for multiple reasons, but one of which is in verse 27. But we know, that we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. It's almost ironic. At the beginning of the chapter, they're beginning to say, well, we know that it can't be Jesus because we know where he comes from. And then they begin to ask the question, well, we know that the Messiah has to come from Bethlehem, so it can't be this man. All they're doing is identifying the fact that they don't actually know where he came from. And in the, in simultaneously, saying that he's validating both clear prophecies. They're not going to know where he's come from all the while, He's sitting right before them as one who has come from Bethlehem, but certainly out of Galilee. So they ask this question, and they ask this question for the sake of confirmation in my perspective. They want to understand and see, okay, if this is the Christ, we want to make sure that it lines up with the entirety of Scripture. Going forward in verse 43, it says this, So there was a division among the people over him. There was a division among the people over him. The division is found in what we say and what we believe about the person of Christ. Friends, if you believe Christ is some man, no one is going to have any controversy with you. But should you claim him to be the Christ, should you claim him to be the Son of God, should you claim him to be the one that died on the cross for your sin, then ultimately you will find that division will erupt pretty much everywhere concerning him. To this day, no one will take offense at you saying Jesus was a good man. I say no one, a bit hyperbolic, but the vast majority of people will not have issue with you if you say Jesus was a good man. Most won't have problems with you if you say he was a prophet. Most really genuinely, I think, for the most part, admire his moralistic teaching that they would presume. But when there begins to be a claim that says, no, we believe everything the scripture says concerning him. We believe that he is the true God, true man. We believe that he is our Lord who has ransomed us. That's where divisions begin to break out. And what you see in this passage is just that. 
in verse 43. So there was a division among them over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. This is the third group. The first group we see, the first two groups are really audible. You see there's, this is really the prophet. The second you see this is the Christ. The third you see are a group of people that want to arrest him because they're violating ultimately what they believe the Jewish faith has been about from the beginning. And they do so in complete and total ignorance. They would look at this great teacher at bare minimum and they say, away with him. He's causing strife. He's causing division. He's causing controversy. But let me add Christ certainly is a means of division. But hear me when I say this. Christ is the church's only means of unity. Christ is the church's only means of unity. This morning I made the joke that football season has started back so we get to watch all the divisions erupt inside of Mercy Hill. We have the Ole Miss, we have the Mississippi State, we have all these people. And you can see them wage war against each other in a loving fashion, of course. There are great divisions that occur but not within the church. And the reason they don't occur in the church is because the church is united not by some some passion or desire, but by the Lord Jesus Christ. If he is the source of unity, then no division can actually erupt. If we profess that he is the Christ and we bow to his lordship each and every day of our lives, that we look at the scriptures and say, it's the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life, friends, unity will actually come. It can't be found anywhere else, and it certainly should not be aimed to be found anywhere else inside the church. Friends, if you aim to have unity in the church for, in, in anything other than the person of Christ, you are aiming at vanity. Only Christ unites the church. The way I like to say it is the only unity in the bride is the groom. The only means by which the bride is united is in the fact that we have one great head. And this great profession here certainly does divide, but I am convinced that what you would have found is a great unity erupting in those who professed him as Christ, God, and Lord. That they began to see, and you began to see the people begin, begin to be knit together. And this would lead us into perhaps passages like Ephesians 2, that these people who profess him as Christ that are being knit together are not Jews only, but also the Gentiles who are being grafted in. That those who are sons of Abraham by faith, by looking to the Lord Jesus and placing faith in him and in him alone, they are grafted in in perfect unity. Though they might find themselves divided from their brothers, sisters, mothers, and fathers, they have been grafted into a true and better family. That's a difficult thing to say in our day and time, but friends, don't forget. You know, we've always heard the phrase that there is, that blood is thicker than water, and I would have to agree. But friends, we have a better blood to be united in. And so, certainly divisions begin to erupt. Many desire to arrest him. And I would like to tell you essentially what is being played out in regard to the Levites' perspective, the the Sanhedrin's perspective. I want you to notice in verse 47. We'll go all the way through 49. We'll jump back up. But the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But the crowd that does not know the law is accursed. I just want to explain to you, because I, I genuinely think there's some great similarities here. And, and, and the beauty of having the word of God in our hands is that each and every member of the church who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God can look into the scriptures and the Holy Spirit of God will illuminate truth to you. He teaches you these things. And I think that's exactly what you see happening in regard to these, as these uh, Pharisees and Sadducees would say in verse 49. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Now let me give you the terminology here because... They are essentially looking at the crowds that are beginning to see these things, that are beginning to profess Christ uh, as Lord, that they see him and, and they see these people and they call them people of the land. 
I love this terminology because it has something very in common with what we find in Genesis when the Lord God creates beasts of the field. These people, these Sadducees, these Pharisees are sitting in their high tower being the learned ones, and they would even profess that these people are simply just that, that they are on the equivalent of beasts of the field in regard to their intellect, their knowledge of God. And they begin to make an appeal to authority and essentially say, since we don't believe, why would you? These people, these people are accursed. Those who would profess Christ as Lord are indeed accursed. And the reason I say that is because I want you to understand the perspectives here. We have, as we read through and study verses 40 through 44, are people that have genuinely, by the, uh, by the understanding of the, of the Sanhedrin, no knowledge of God. They would look at them and laugh. Unlearned men. Friends, the reason I love this so very much is it does not take a great intellect to see Christ as Lord. It takes the illumination of the Holy Spirit of God. And what you find in this passage is just that. The Lord Jesus has taught. He has made clear who he was. And by his grace, he has, through the Spirit, illuminated that truth into these people, these beasts of the field or peoples of the land, if you will. And then they begin to think to themselves all the while, if we haven't believed, they're just accursed. John's irony continues. His irony continues because in verse 27, we see that they don't know where he's going to come from. Simultaneously, they begin to say, well, you're not from Bethlehem, and if you're not from Bethlehem, you can't be the Messiah. Simultaneously, these people who were supposed to be the most learned of all of Israel are looking at the fulfillment of the Jewish faith and saying, not him. All the while, the beasts of the field, the people of the land are saying, yes, him. The glories of this, I genuinely think, should permeate our souls because it matters not your understanding, your education. It matters nothing. Nothing matters in regard to that. It is only this, what you say of Christ. Do you know him as Lord God and King? If that be the case, then friends, you have a deeper understanding of the God that the Jewish people in this day were preaching than they did. I'm convinced as time progresses through this study that the God the Jewish people served in this day was not in any way, shape, form, or fashion the God that was clearly revealed in the Old Testament. They had crafted for themselves an idol. And to this day, it breaks my heart. Next week, they will celebrate the Day of Atonement. And they will go and they will have this grand celebration all the while rejecting the God who prescribed the method and then fulfilled it. It is perhaps the most tragic of things, but friends, I would encourage you. Do not be fooled by individuals who would elevate themselves based upon intellect or based upon their, um, whatever their conclusions are, but instead search the scriptures as these people of the land or beasts of the field did, for they were far nobler than those who would presume on their own intellect. But let's examine what takes place in regard to these officers. Let's examine what takes place to those men who are supposed to be the most learned. In verse 45, it says this, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? Now, just as a, as a way of, of reference, the officers mentioned here are, are Levites. They are priests. They had a prescription. They, they were kind of like the ones who made sure everything worked appropriately. And so the Sanhedrin sends them out to go arrest the Lord Jesus. And then we find him, them being asked when they return without him, why did you not bring him? I love this. In verse, in verse 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Can you imagine how this rang in the Pharisees' ears? They were the chief teachers of Israel. 
and their own people are coming back and saying to them, I've never heard anyone preach like this. I've never heard such truth be displayed. I've never seen such authority and power in a voice. And, he's, and he, they're saying this to those who are the highest preachers and teachers of Israel. I can imagine their pride began to erupt within them. I mean, deep anger and hatred toward this one who has become the, the greatest of teachers in Israel. A couple of weeks ago, Blake preached in regard to um, a passage just previously in this chapter, and he made reference to, the, to how anger blinds. Everything we see from this point forward is exactly that. Their pride had given way to a sinful anger, and in their anger, they have blinded themselves to the truth of Scripture. And we can see that in the perhaps most clear sense as we press on. But we see that no one has ever spoke like this man. This great profession is a powerful one. And then in verse 47, it says this, The Pharisees answered him, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? So this is called an appeal to authority. It's a fallacy. Essentially, they're trying to make their point based upon the fact that those who are the most learned have not yet believed. It reminds me of a, of, a, of a moment in recent history, or perhaps more recent history, when we saw Martin Luther during the days of the Reformation be essentially the only one standing still. Right before his court appearance, he began to pray very fervently, Lord, how is it that I'm the only one? The people who are power, more powerful than me, there are more than me. Why is it that I stand here by myself? And it's in that moment where he had to be convicted that truth was not based upon the people who prescribed to it. Truth was not based on how powerful those individuals were or how many they were. Truth is based on truth. Truth is based on itself. And friends, what you find here is them making this appeal. We haven't believed, then why would you we haven't believed, and since we haven't believed, why would any beast of the field or person of the land believe them? Why would you be persuaded? Because these people are being more faithful Jews than these are. The beast of the field, the people of the land are more faithful because they are actually looking to see the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the promised one to come instead of these Pharisees desiring to preserve their own systems. And so what takes place? They begin to do what is perhaps most natural. They begin to express their anger. The first way they express their anger is essentially by sweeping every individual who has professed Christ as either prophet or Christ and call him accursed. Verse 49 says this, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. They essentially throw them under the rug and blanket them and say they are cursed. They are cut off. Remember what I said? It's nothing like Christ that divides. These people that at once, they were the people who would teach them, who would train them. And now they're looking at these people that they have themselves perhaps taught throughout the years and calling them accursed. Why? It's not because they aren't being obedient to the teachings of the Old Testament. It's because they are. They are being obedient to the teachings of the Old Testament. They had their eyes fixed looking for the promised Messiah, and he has arrived. And they gladly say, this is him. And the officers are saying, there's none who have ever spoken like him. And their blinding anger essentially leads them to the place where they just throw them under the rug and call them accursed, cut off. Nothing divides like the Lord Jesus. And we should not be surprised 
when similar things occur in our day, and I would argue even to the extent you should be less surprised when it happens inside the church. You should be less surprised when the church stands faithfully on, perhaps if you would like to, I would argue this is the best place to stand on the five solas, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And friends, should you stand there, you should go ahead and brace yourself for a bit of friendly fire. Because the idea that Christ alone is the one who saves, the idea that it's through faith alone and grace alone, nothing of our own merit, attacks the human pride to such a degree that it can do nothing but blindly swing about in a violent rage. Friends, this is no surprise here, and it will be no surprise as the decades continue. Until our Lord returns, there will be people who claim the name of Christ, and they claim not the Christ of Scriptures, but they claim one that they have fabricated in their minds, much like the Jews had of the God they say they served. They have no, no route but to be brawlers. And so as we look on, what we find is a familiar character, a man named Nicodemus. We're familiar with Nicodemus from John chapter 3 and also Nicodemus being the one who provided the, uh, the, the place for Jesus to be buried. And so as we look at verse 50, Nicodemus who had gone to him before. Now, I love Nicodemus because I, at this point I almost consider him a spy. Like, I know that he's, at this point, I'm not convinced that he's regenerate, that he's in Christ at this point, but, but he has a love for Jesus already. He's had the conversation with him, and he's almost like this, this, this inside agent trying to curb the Pharisees to keep them on track to some degree. And I think eventually he does just say, I'm done with you. But Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, one of the Sanhedrin, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So he essentially appeals to their justice. And then verse 52, we see them strike back. Are you from Galilee too? They begin to attack Nicodemus. Now, this is my favorite statement in the entire passage. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, first of all, I love it because you see their, their, their bias. You see them, their statement is not search and see if this can actually be him. They are aiming to make a clear statement from Scripture that this cannot be him. But they're asking the question, search and see that no prophet no prophet of old. Now, what's interesting about this is, look, no one's ever going to look at the Pharisees and say they don't know their facts. They know their facts of the Old Testament. There are a couple of prophets that come from Galilee, um, two of which are of my favorite, Jonah and Nahum. Jonah and Nahum both are recorded to come from Galilee. And the reason I think this is so very important is because in the books of Jonah and Nahum, you have two major themes are up. You have two major themes. The two major themes are found in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7, we see the attributes of God clearly displayed. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A God who forgives sin, transgression, and iniquity, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Jonah is all about the first portion. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah in rebellion, certainly, but he goes to the Ninevites. He goes to them teaching, repent, and repent and the Lord perhaps will turn from his destruction. And certainly they do just that because Jonah, what? He knows that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And simultaneously you find in the book of Nahum, a hundred years later, Nahum goes to Nineveh. Their repentance was not prolonged. And he goes and he, and he gladly preaches judgment on Nineveh. 
The reason I love these two prophets, and I love the fact that this statement would have led Nicodemus to return and say, Jonah and Nahum, is because in Jonah and Nahum, we see the Lord Jesus clearly preached. In the book of Jonah and Nahum, we see the Lord merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We see that in the Lord Jesus. Not only that, but we see a God who will certainly forgive sin, trespass, and iniquity. But we also see a God who will by no means clear the guilty. Hear me when I say this, friends. In the person of Christ, we have the perfect revelation of the Father. As we look at Jonah and Nahum, we see that statement, that glorious statement where Moses pleads, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord responds with this statement. Friends, he responds all the louder here. He responds all the louder because he says, certainly I am the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But if you look to Christ, you can see my steadfast love, my faithfulness, my graciousness, my mercy. You can see in the person of Christ that he forgives sin, trespass, and iniquity. But simultaneously, and hear me when, you say, when I say this, he will by no means clear the guilty. For some reason, we have in our minds that these two things are at odds. They are not. But only in the person of Christ can we find these things fulfilled. The only means by which God could be faithful to his justice and simultaneously execute uh, glorious mercy and grace is through the finished work of Christ on the cross. Justice had to be paid and met in full. If justice was not paid and met in full, then we could look to the Lord and say, you are unjust. And that would be a violation of his character. And friends, he would no longer be God. But what we find in this glorious revelation of Jonah and Nahum, these prophets that, the, that Nicodemus would have gone and searched out and brought back to their attention, is perhaps when all is said and done, when the Pharisees would watch the Christ be crucified and certainly they would see him raised again, perhaps it would ring in their ears, Jonah and Nahum. He came once first, mercy, grace, and justice. We see that fulfilled on the cross, but friends, there is a second time he comes. And it is wrath and fury. They know this, and they know it all too well. And I say once again, it is nothing like Christ that divides. But the last thing I would say is though that be the case, it is only Christ that unites. It is only in the finished work of Christ that each and every one of us have a home. It is only in the finished work of Christ that each and every one of us have the ability not to be divided from our Lord, but instead be united with him throughout all eternity. Certainly the Lord will divide you, certainly, from people that you love dearly. They will cast stones at you, they will hate you, but never fear, because though you might be divided from them, you will never be divided from your Lord who loves you who has given his only begotten for you, that you might know him and know him in full. And friends, I would like to perhaps conclude this with saying that those who are united with Christ here, though they be divided from the world, will forever be united with him eternally. Should you face divisions here, rest comfortably. There will be a day when every soul around that throne will be perfectly united in a glorious harmony of holy is the Lord. And that is the day that we look forward to and long for and that allows us to deal with the great divisions that are perhaps caused here. I echo Paul. I do not consider the, future, the, the current sufferings worthy to be compared to the future glories.